Chapter Seven of Gold by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trail. We made desperate efforts next morning to find somebody who knew the man, or at least could point out to us his effects, but in vain. All was confusion, and everybody was too busy getting away to pay us very much attention. This, I am convinced, was not hard-heartedness on the part of most, but merely that all men's minds were filled with a great desire. Our own transport men were impatient to be off, and we had finally to abandon the matter. Whether or not the man had a family or friends who would never know what had become of him, we shall never find out. Later in the gold rush, there were many scores of such cases. Having paid the alcalde, we set forth. Mercedes did not appear. Our good padrone was on hand to say farewell to us at the edge of town. He gave us a sort of cup made from coconut husk to which long cords had been attached. With these, he explained, we could dip up water without dismounting. We found them most convenient. Shortly after we had left town, and before we had really begun our journey in earnest, we passed a most astonishing caravan going the other way. This consisted of sixteen mules and donkeys under sole charge of three men armed with antiquated and somewhat rusty muskets. On either side of each mule, slung in a rope, and plain to see, hung a heavy ingot of gold. Fascinated, we approached and stroked the satiny beautiful metal, and wondered that, on a road so crowded with travelers of all grades, so precious a train should be freely entrusted to the three ragged, lazy natives. So curious did this seem that Talbot inquired of the leader why it was allowed. Whither would a thief run to? How could he carry away these heavy ingots? The man propounded. Often around subsequent campfires we have in idle curiosity attempted to answer these two questions successfully, but have always failed. The gold was safe. Talbot insisted, with a good deal of heavy argument, that our effects should precede us on the trail. The wisdom of this was apparent before we had been out an hour. We came upon dozens of porters resting, sprawled out by the side of their loads. I could hardly blame them, for these men carried by means of a bamboo screen and straps across the shoulders and forehead the most enormous loads. But farther on we passed also several mule trains, for whose stopping there could be no reason or excuse except that their natives were lazy. Our own train we were continually overtaking and prodding on, to its intense disgust. Thus Talbot's forethought, or experience with people of this type, assured us our goods. Some of our shipmates were still waiting for their baggage, when we sailed to the north. We now entered a dense forest country. The lofty trees, thick foliage, swinging vines, and strange big leaves undoubtedly would have impressed us under other conditions. But just now we were too busy. The rains had softened the trail until it was of the consistency of very stiff mud. In this mud the first mule had left his tracks. The next mule trod carefully in the first mule's footsteps, and all subsequent mules did likewise. The consequence 
was a succession of narrow, deep holes in the clay into which an animal's leg sank halfway to the shoulder. No power on earth, I firmly believe, could have induced those mules to step anywhere else. Each hole was full of muddy water. When the mule inserted his hoof, the water spurted out violently, as though from a squirt gun. As a result, we were, I believe, the most muddied and bedraggled crew on earth. We tried walking, but could not get on at all. Occasionally, we came to a steep little ravine, down and up the slippery banks of which we slid and scrambled. Yank and his mule once landed in a heap, plump in the middle of a stream. In the course of these tribulations, we became somewhat separated. Johnny and I found ourselves riding along in company, and much too busy to talk. As we neared a small group of natives under a tree, three of them started towards us on a run, shouting something. We stopped and drew together. One of the assailants seized Johnny's animal by the bit, and another's gesture commanded him to dismount. "'Get out of that!' shouted Johnny threateningly, and, as the man did not obey his emphatic tone, he snatched out his colt's pistol. I closed in next to him and did the same. Our threatening attitude caused the men to draw back a trifle, but they redoubled their vociferations. Johnny attempted to spur his mule forward, but all three threw themselves in his way. The rest of the natives, four in number, joined the group. They pointed at Johnny's animal, motioned peremptorily for him to descend, and one of them ventured again to seize his bridle. "'I don't believe it's robbery anyhow,' said I. They seem to recognize your mule. Probably you're riding a stolen animal. I don't know anything about that, said Johnny, a trifle angrily, but I do know I hired it to go to Panama with, and to Panama I'm going. They can settle their mule question afterward. But when he gathered his reins again, he was prevented from going on. Johnny reached suddenly forward and struck with his pistol barrel at the head of the man holding his rein. He missed by a fraction of an inch, and the man leaped back with a cry of rage. Everybody yelled and drew near, as though for a rush, and Johnny and I cocked our weapons. At this moment we heard Talbot Ward's voice from beyond. "'Take him from that side!' yelled Johnny excitedly. "'Give it to him, Tal!' Talbot shouted again in Spanish. Every brigand in the lot immediately turned in his direction, shouting, perfect fountains of words. After a moment, Talbot afoot emerged from the jungle and calmly picked his way through the mud towards us. Put up your shooting irons, he grinned at us. These men tell me your saddle pad is on crooked, and they want to straighten it for you. Johnny, and I'm sure myself, turned red. Then everybody howled with glee. Johnny dismounted, and a dozen eager hands adjusted the harness. We shook hands all around, laughed some more, and resumed our very sloppy journey. This, to me, was one of the most terrible days I ever spent. We passed dozens of dead mules and vultures that sat in trees, and exhausted men lying flat as though dead, and sick men shaken with fever, and one poor wretch whom we picked up and took with us, who had actually laid down to die. He was half raving with fever and as near as we could make out, had had companions. We twisted him aboard a mule, and took turns walking alongside and holding him on. 
beyond the fact that he was a very small individual with light hair and an english accent we could tell nothing about him he was suffering from cholera although we did not know that at the time that night we spent at a wayside hut where we left our patient early the next morning we began to ascend a little and so came to a rocky tableland with palms and beyond it another ridge of hills we climbed that ridge and descended the other side another elevation lay before us this we surmounted only to find a third after we had put a dozen such ranges behind us we made the mistake of thinking the next was sure to be the last we got up our hopes a number of times in this fashion then fell dully into a despair of ever getting anywhere the day was fearfully hot the indian who had stolidly preceded us as a guide at last stopped washed his feet carefully in a wayside mud hole and put on his pantaloons this looks to me like an encouraging symptom i remarked shortly after we entered the city of panama End of chapter 7